welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is from the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. This is the evening service of Sunday the 25th of February 2018, entitled God's Manhunt, and the Bible reading is taken from Ezekiel chapter 22. Here's Brother Dave Kistler. So I want you to take your Bibles, turn to Ezekiel chapter number 22, if you would please. Ezekiel chapter number 22. While you're turning, I want to ask you a couple of questions by way of introduction because I'm going to try to be as brief as I can possibly be tonight for your sake and for my sake as well. Do you follow American football? All of you know what I'm talking about, American football, not soccer, but American football. You know what I'm talking about? Anybody here know what I'm talking about, American football? Okay, all right, don't be ashamed to admit that, okay? Uh, Anybody in here ever seen the Miami Dolphins of the um, American football team play? Anybody ever seen them? All right, I knew there was another connection over here, brother. That's great. All right, listen, I'm a Miami Dolphins football fan. If you know anything about American football, you know the Dolphins have not been too successful of late. However, in 1972-73, the Miami Dolphins did something that had never been done prior to 72-73. It's never been duplicated since. Does anybody know what the Miami Dolphins did? Anybody know what they did? They were the only team to go undefeated an entire season in the National Football League. 14-0 in the regular season, won two playoff games, then won the Super Bowl. Only team to ever accomplish that feat. By the way, playing on the line for the Miami Dolphins in 72-73 was a gentleman by the name of Mike Colon. His last name is spelled K-O-L-E-N. He played his college football at the University of Auburn in Georgia. He graduated, went into the NFL, played eight seasons, all eight seasons for the Miami Dolphins. And when he retired from the NFL, the coach of the Alabama, or excuse me, the Auburn Tigers, Pat Dye, where Mike had played his college ball, he said, Mike, I want you to come back to your alma mater. I want you to come back to the university where you played, and I want you to recruit student athletes to play football for the University of Auburn. True story. What happened, Brother Brian, is this. Wanting to do a good job, Mike Colin said to Coach Pat Dye, he said, well, what kind of student athletes are you wanting me to recruit? And um, uh, Pat said, well, you know, we want outstanding, stellar athletes. If they can be great in the classroom as well, that's great. He said, uh, but we want that. And so Mike Colin said to Pat Dye, he said, well, I'm going to endeavor to recruit those kind of students. Now, again, tell me what you want. And so Pat Dye said this. He said, well, Mike, let me put it this way. You know that guy on the football field, when you hit him and you knock him down, he just stays on the turf? And Mike Cullen said, well, Coach, I hadn't played against too many like that. Well, Coach Pat Dye said, well, that's not what we want. We don't want the guy playing for us that when you hit him and knock him down, he stays down. But you know the guy on the football field, when you hit him and you knock him down, he gets up. You hit him the second time, and when you knock him down the second time, he stays on the turf. And Mike Cullen said, well, Coach, I hadn't played against too many like that either, but I think I know the type. Well, Pat Dye said, well, that's not what we want at Auburn University either. But you know the guy on the football field, when you hit him, knock him down, he gets back up. You hit him again, knock him down, he gets back up. You keep hitting him, knocking him down, he keeps getting back up. And Mike Cullen at that point said, Coach, that's the kind of guy we want to recruit to play football at Auburn, right? And Pat Dye said, well, no, not really. The guy we want at Auburn is the guy doing all the knocking down. If you can find him, recruit him to come play football here. <laughs> True story. Now, stay with me. Method of my madness. Do you know as much as it is important to find the right kind of student athlete to play a college sport, there's something more important than that going on in our lives? Stay with me. 1996, in my country, the United States of America, we were the host for the Summer Olympics. Atlanta, Georgia was the host city. United States was the host country. Any of you remember this? 
If you'll remember three days, I think it was, before the commencement, the start of the Summer Olympics in 1996, there was a bomb that was planted and detonated in a place called Olympic Park, also called Centennial Park, where the athletes were gathered. Any of you remember what I'm talking about? Initially, the guy that they thought planted and detonated the device was a security guard that summer by the name of William Jewell. Actually, Mr. Jewell had nothing to do with planning or detonating the device. He was caught on a security camera on video, happened to be Brian in the wrong place at the wrong time. He had nothing to do with the incident. He was totally innocent of any culpability whatsoever, and ultimately that was proven. But here's the deal, folks. Though he was innocent of anything to do with planning, detonating that device, do you know the initial accusation? He was never able to shake it, Brian. He lived the rest of his life under a false accusation. He was completely acquitted of any culpability. No, the guy that planted and detonated the device was actually a guy named Eric Rudolph. And Eric Rudolph, you remember this, after he planted and detonated that device that injured four and killed one, he fled to the mountains of the state that Brian and I live in, and he hung out in western North Carolina. Any of you have ever been in western North Carolina? If, you, if you've ever been there, it is rugged. Am I speaking truth right? It's rugged territory. It's mountainous territory. You don't hang out in the western part of North Carolina and survive as long as Eric Rudolph did without having a little help from the locals. Somebody's feeding information to this guy. Somebody's getting food to him. Do you know how long Eric Rudolph evaded capture by the authorities? Ten years. Now, we have an entity in the United States called the FBI, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and they have a most wanted list. The top guy on the list for 10 years was Eric Rudolph, and he evaded capture by the notorious FBI. I mean, they're excellent at what they do, but he evaded capture for 10 years, and over those 10 years, you're hearing me correctly, the FBI spent $4 million trying to capture one guy. Do you remember how they called him? Yeah, he was outside kind of what we call in America, 7-Eleven style store, convenience store. He had been doing some what we call dumpster diving. He was getting into the dumpster, trying to find things in the dumpster. He had gotten out of the dumpster, gone over to a pay phone to make a phone call, and an off-duty first-year police officer, rookie cop, drove by and looked and thought, that looks like Eric Rudolph, the guy that's on the FBI's most wanted list. Well, he called for backup. Backup came. Sure enough, it was Mr. Rudolph. Brian, do you remember he didn't resist arrest at all? They put his hands behind his back, handcuffed him, took him and booked him for the murder of one, the injury of four, and the longest, most expensive manhunt in U.S. history came to a conclusion. Now you say, preacher, why are you telling us that? Folk, as important as it is for a football coach to find the right kind of student athlete, as infinitely more important as it is for the FBI to notice and locate the most wanted men on their FBI list, can I say this? There's a bigger manhunt going on. And God's the one conducting it. You say, preacher, what are you talking about? I want you to look at Ezekiel 22, verse 30, and I'm going to try to be as brief as I can be tonight, but I want you to see something about God's manhunt. God's manhunt. Now, before I read the verse, can I have all of you look up at me for a minute? Ladies, can I, can I say this? I am so thankful you're here. 
I am thrilled you're here. And by the way, Miss Rifika, wonderful to see you again. You're looking great, and I got you. You're right there. Handsome as always. I appreciate Brother Carl. But listen, all you ladies, listen, you, you all look wonderful. You really do. I'm glad you're here, ladies. I'm so thankful for you. Uh, I, I'm about to say something, and I'm trying to set this up so you understand where I'm going. I don't want to offend any of the ladies. Ladies, I love you, and I'm thankful for you. Uh, I have nothing against the ladies. I have nothing against the women. I want you to understand my, my wife is a woman. You understand that? Okay, my mom was a woman, so I have nothing against the women. Uh, but tonight, I'm just being honest with you, really, ladies, the message is going to apply to you, but it's not really directed at you. Tonight, fellas, this message is for us. I want to talk to you about God's manhunt. Now, ladies, don't leave. It's going to apply. But my target audience tonight, fellas, is us. All right, look at Ezekiel 22, verse 30, where the Bible says this, God speaking, and I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. But I found, would you say the last word of verse 30? But I found, said out, real out. I found what? None. Literally, the word none in Hebrew means this. I found not one single solitary individual. God is on a manhunt. Now, in order for you to understand what is actually going on here, I, wanna, I just want to beseech your rapt attention for just a few minutes because I want to show you three simple things, really three simple things. We're going to be done, and we're going to make our way home. If you're taking notes, and I'd encourage you to do that, would you just write down this word, the setting, S-E-T-T-I-N-G, setting. I want to show you the setting or the context of verse number 30. God is looking for men, but why is he looking for men? In this chapter, there is a reason he's doing that. Now look at Ezekiel 22 and verse number 1 for you to understand the setting of verse number 30. Watch Ezekiel 22 verse 1. By the way, in verse 1, the, the prophet Ezekiel is speaking and inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, he says this, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Now thou son of man, wilt thou judge, wilt thou judge the... What kind of city is described here? What kind of city? The bloody city. The bloody city referred to here is Jerusalem. Why is it called a bloody city? Because there was all kinds of evil and wickedness and murder that was rampant in the city. By the way, may I say this? It sounds like a lot of major cities across my country and yours where there's a lot of bloodshed going on. Are you with me tonight? By the way, in my country, since 1973, there's been a lot of bloodshed via a heinous practice called abortion. Some 60 million innocent babies have been aborted in the safest place they should be. There ought never be anyone be allowed to enter that region to harm them. I'm talking about their mother's womb. Can I hear an amen? What in the world are we thinking in America? Same thing going on in Ezekiel's day. Rampant bloodshed. However, it didn't stop there. Look at verse 2. Then say thou, thus saith the Lord, the city, and by the way, the city here referred to in Ezekiel 22.2 is actually Jerusalem, or Ezekiel 22.3, it's Jerusalem. The city sheddeth blood in the midst of it. However, it doesn't stop with bloodshed. Now stay with me. Look at verse 11. Talking about the same city, Jerusalem, ancient Jerusalem. Look what it says in verse 11. And one hath committed abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another hath lewdly defiled his daughter-in-law. And another in thee hath humbled his sister, his father's daughter. Now, folk, look up at me. I want to be very discreet here. But this verse, verse 11, is the Bible's incredibly, incredibly discreet way of saying this. Not only was there rampant bloodshed going on, there was rampant immorality going on. That sounds like the cities of the world, doesn't it? 
sounds like my country. In the midst of immorality and bloodshed, you say, Brother Dave, surely somebody was speaking out against that. You know what? You'd hope so. Well, Brother Dave, where were the prophets of Ezekiel's day? What were they doing? Were they speaking out against it? Look down at verse 25. Ezekiel 22, verse 25. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. Like a roaring lion ravening the prey, they, the prophets, have devoured souls and taken the treasure and precious things and made her many widows in the midst thereof. This is the Bible's way of saying this. If you're looking for help from the prophets in Ezekiel's day, forget it. They're all corrupt. By the way, I'm not trying to be unkind about anybody or say anything negative unnecessarily about someone, but preacher, there's a problem. When America's best-known pastor can be interviewed by one of the major interviewers in our country, and he has asked a simple question, and the question is this, is there really pastor of the largest church in America? Is there really only one way to heaven? What is the answer to that? Uh, uh, yes. Is there really only one way to heaven? Well, you know what this guy does? Here, here's how he starts. You know you're in trouble when he starts here. Well, Larry, which was the interviewer's name, I am no man's judge. May I say this? This has nothing to do with judging anybody. This has to do with speaking truth. Jesus said not I am a way. He said I am the way. He didn't say I am a life. He said I am the life. He didn't say I am a truth. He said I am the truth, John 14, 6. Listen how exclusive this is. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Are you hearing me? There's only one way to heaven. It's through Jesus. You don't come that way, you don't get in. Are you hearing me? America's pastor of the largest church says, well, Larry, I'm no man's judge. He meanders all over the map. Then here's where he settles. Well, Larry, I can't really say there's just one way to heaven. I can say that because the Bible says that. Are you with me? Brian, do you ever watch TV? And as they ask these questions, can you say there's only one way to heaven? You're doing this. You're raising your hand going, ah, 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 let me answer that one. I've got the answer. I'm doing that. My wife says, honey, calm down. What I'm trying to say is a lot of preachers today are just purveyors of facts, but they're not proclaimers of truth. Are you with me? In Ezekiel's day, the prophets were worthless. Well, Brother Dave, what about the priests in Ezekiel's day? Surely they'd speak truth. Well, you'd hope so. However, look at verse 26 of Ezekiel 22. Her priests have violated my law. They have profaned my holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they showed difference between the unclean and the clean. And have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. In other words, not only were the prophets not speaking truth, they were worthless. The priests would not do so either. You say, Brother Dave, what about, uh, uh, LOL. Any of you text that, LOL, laugh out loud? I want to laugh out loud when I ask this question. What about the politicians of Ezekiel's day? Good luck with that group, right? By the way, they didn't call them politicians in Ezekiel's day. They called them princes. Look at verse 27. Her princes, i.e. her politicians in the midst thereof, are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood, to destroy souls. Watch this. To get dishonest gain. In other words, if you're looking for somebody to speak out against the immorality and the bloodshed going on, if you're looking for help from the prophets, sorry, they're not going to help. Looking for the priests, they're not going to be of any help. Looking for the politicians, sorry, no help coming there. Well, Brother Dave, surely among the common people, just the regular folks, somebody would be willing to speak truth. You'd hope so. However, I want you to look at Ezekiel 22, verse 29. 
The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and the needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. Now, folk, look up. This is very important. Prophets, priests, politicians, people, all of them in Ezekiel's day, corrupt. Now, if you look at verse 30, you'll understand part of the verse now. The setting of it. Look at verse 30. Where God says, an assault for a man. Would you say the next two words? Assault for a man. Among who? Who's the them? The corrupt politicians. The godless prophets. The on-the-take priests. The corrupt people. Among them, I'm looking for one guy. God said, I couldn't find a single one. Setting, number two, I want you to write this word down. The search. The search. The kind of guy God's looking for, he's searching for, has two qualities God's looking for. Look at Ezekiel 22, verse 30. Now stay with me, I'm headed somewhere. And I sought for a man among them that should do two things. Number one, make up the hedge. Now look up at me for a minute. I used to read that, Brother Daniel, years ago. My dad would preach on this verse, or he'd talk about, you know, praying. This is a big phrase. You ever heard someone say, I pray a hedge of protection around the Joneses as they make their way on their holiday? Any of you ever heard that, pray a hedge? I'm just confessing, Brother Peter, my own stupidity. Growing up as a boy, I would hear my dad say, I pray for the Joneses as they go on vacation. Pray a hedge of protection. And I'm thinking hedge, I'm thinking shrubbery. Like a hedgerow. You know what I'm talking about? And I'm thinking, Dad, why are you praying shrubbery around it? Don't you know the devil can step through the shrubbery? and get, Why don't you pray a concrete wall around them? Well, obviously, hedge here doesn't... It's not talking about vegetation. Literally, I'm looking for a man who will make up the hedge. Make up the hedge literally means this. Who will build, erect a wall. Let me ask, has anybody in here ever built a wall? Rob, am I speaking truth? That is tiring work. By the way, we have a, not a wall, we have a fence around a portion of our property. It's not around much of it, but it's around part of it. I did not build the fence. The guy that owned the house before we bought it built it. But all I tried to do at my wife's admonition one day was go out and put paint on the fence. It hadn't been painted in 15 years. So I put a coat of paint on. You know what that fence did? It mocked me all day long. I put a coat on. It sucked it right in and looked at me and went, nah, 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 nah. try that again. So I put a second coat. Sucked it right in. Didn't even look like I'd even touched it. Nah, nah, nah. Do you know how tiring it is? Not to build a fence, just to paint the thing. It is tiring work. But it's necessary work and here's why. Because walls are for protection. Brother Dave, what do we need protection from? What needs to be protected? That God is saying, I'm look for, looking for a man who will be selfless enough to erect a wall around what? Can I suggest this? How about a wall around our families? I'm talking about spiritually, guys. 
Do you know you are responsible, sir, for your family? I'm responsible for mine. I am responsible for how I teach and rear my children. I'm responsible for how I train and teach and try to help and love and cultivate my wife to be the best she can be. How about building a wall of protection around our families because the divorce rate right now is almost as high in the church as it is outside the church. Are you listening to me? Or you want to build a wall around my family? How about this? How about a wall of protection around the church? Brother Dave, is the church under attack? It is. Brother Brian, I never dreamed in my wildest imagination when I graduated from Bible college that we'd be dealing with this in my country. It's not just here. It's all over America. A denial of a teaching that is fundamental in the Bible. It's called ECT. That's, that's what the opponents of it call it. It stands for eternal conscious torment. Oh, God's a God of love. And he is a God of love. Can I hear an amen? But here's what some are saying. He's so much a God of love that he would never let anybody go to a place of eternal conscious torment. No, everybody's ultimately going to get into heaven one day. Can I tell you, that's not true. Everybody's not going to get into heaven. Jesus said it this way. Broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. But narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. Are you with me? fact of the matter is this, and it breaks my heart to say it. The vast majority of the six million people plus that make up the city of Birmingham, and I love this city, the vast majority of them are, are not ready to go to heaven. They're not prepared. They're not going to go. Are you with me? We need to preach the truth. Because, Pastor, this denial of this truth is going to damn more souls to hell than we could ever imagine. We need walls of protection around the doctrinal teachings of the church. Are you with me? How about a wall of protection around your country? Folk, I'm sorry. I love England. I love all of the UK. I've never been in Ireland. I have been in Scotland. I've been in Wales. I love everything about it. Brother Larry, first time I came here, you know, I think we talked about it. I know Brother Pris talked about it. It was the hardest thing in the world for me the first time I came here. I fell in love with this place. I did not want to go home. If I could have liquidated all my responsibilities in 19, I think it was 90, 91, first time I came here, I would have stayed in the country of England. I love everything about it. I and I know you, you say we're the ones that have an accent, and that's probably true. But anyway, I love the British. I love it. I, I just want, Brother Peters, I just want to sit and bask in the glow of his accent. It's true. I, I just love it. I love it. There's nothing wrong with loving your country. Are you with me? We have nations, yours and mine, that are in trouble. And somebody needs to build walls of protection around our beloved lands. Can I hear an amen? God's looking for men that will be selfless enough. Build walls. However, there's a second component in God's search. He's looking for selfless men, but he's looking for sacrificial men. You say, why do you say that? Look at verse 30 again. And I saw from men among them that should make up the hedge, erect a wall, build a wall, and watch this. Stand in the gap. Brother Dave, what does that mean? I'm going to try to get through this, okay? So forgive me if I struggle. There was a war in our country, in America. In the 1800s, the 1850s, 
1860s called the Civil War. North divided against South. It split our country right down the middle. One of the key battles of the Civil War in America occurred at a place called Gettysburg. In Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, have you ever been there? Did you get a CD from the Tourist Information Bureau and put it in the player of your car and drive through? Years ago, they used to give you a cassette tape. How many of you remember cassette tapes? <laughs> oh, everyone. Well, you remember? Wow. Uh, you're a student of history, I guess, because all of us older people raised our hand. How many of you remember 8-track? Eight 8-track eight tapes, remember those? <laughs> you have one? No, you don't. Do, do you really? Well, did it really? Man, y'all need to get into the 21st century along with me. We went to the Tourist Information Bureau at Gettysburg. They gave us a cassette tape, and they said, insert it in the tape player of your car, drive into the battlefield, pull up to the first monument, which will be on your left, put your car in park, leave the engine running, tape deck playing, and a narrator on the tape will guide you through the battlefield. It was awesome. As we're being routed through the battlefield, the narrator said, now pull up to the next monument, which again will be on your left. Brian, I pulled up, put my vehicle in park, left the engine running, tape that playing, and the narrator said, you need to look down the ravine, down the little hill, and about as high as the back of these chairs were what was left of a wall. You could tell the wall had been very hastily built and very crudely built. And the narrator said that wall, the remnant of it that's left, was built during the zenith of those three days of hell on earth called Gettysburg. Do you know so much blood was shed from the men on the part of the north and south at Gettysburg that their blood soaked into the soil and when it rained, and you're nodding your head, Brother Peter, when it rained, their blood got into the streams and turned the streams red. More people died in three days at Gettysburg than have died in most of our wars in America combined three days. The narrator said this. The Army of the South, it was called the Army of Northern Virginia, led by Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson. They're trying to take that hill, and he directed our attention to look through the windshield of our car. You could see the raised hill. The Army of the North was holding that hill. That hill was pivotal to what happened in the rest of the battle. So the Northern Virginia Army, the South, was trying to conquer that hill. So they were ducking down behind this wall that they'd crudely and hastily built out of rock, and they'd load their muskets up. They'd stand up, fire. That group would peel to the back. Next group of guys load their muskets up, stand up, fire, peel to the back. And they're actually making progress in taking the hill, killing and wounding men at the top of the hill until the Army of the North brings in the heavy artillery. Talking about cannons. And the narrator, Brian, said this, it took generally two to three shots to dial in distance and accuracy. But on the fourth round, when they fired a cannonball round down at that fence, it hit that fence, that wall, that crudely built, hastily built wall of rock, and it sent splinters of rock flying in Thousands of directions. Now, Brian, his words, not mine. The narrator said, there's a gaping hole in the wall that musket fire can come through. He said, you know what the men of the south did? Behind that wall, first man chucked his musket, pitched it, and stood up, Brian, 
and plugged the hole in the wall with his torso. And the narrator said it's called standing in the gap. He plugged the hole with his body. Now it is his body absorbing musket fire. It's the appendages of his body being shot off, his fingers and tips of his ears and nose by the musket fire. And heaven help if a cannonball round hit him, sending flesh in hundreds of directions. The narrator said when the first guy slumped over in death, his comrade behind him would reach up and pull what was left of the corpse by the clothing, by the uniform, out of the hole in the wall, and now it's his turn to stand in the gap. And the guy said all day long, men from the south, northern Virginia army, stood in the gap for what they believed. Forgive me, friends, we don't know that kind of sacrifice anymore, do we? No, we live in a culture where it's all about me, my comfort, and my agenda. That is sacrificial living. God's looking for men who'll be selfless enough to build a wall, but sacrificial enough to die on that battlefield. Now, don't you look at me for a minute, because I'm about to take something off right here for a second. Can I say something? Preacher, do you wear a tie usually on Sunday mornings and Sunday nights? Yes, and usually Monday night and Tuesday night and Wednesday night, unless I'm speaking to teenagers. But can I tell you something? This is a piece of fabric, right? Can I tell you what I am not going to die for is a piece of fabric? You say, what are you talking about? Brother Larry, there are people in my... And and please don't misunderstand. Look, I have to wear a tie and a certain kind of suit... There is an unofficial dress code in Washington, D.C. It is a pinstripe suit, white shirt generally, and one of four color ties. Red, yellow, purple, or blue. Blue's the real power color right now in D.C. So I dress like the natives in D.C. when I go to D.C. I've been, everybody's accused me, oh, sir, what state do you represent? Where are you a senator from? Are you a guy? And I'm not. But I dress like the natives, okay? I figure if I can do that for Congress, I can do that for Christ. Are you with me? But, 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 stay with me. I'm not going to fight and die over where I wear a tie in the pulpit or not. Are you with me? Did you hear about the guy who showed up at a church on a Sunday morning and two ushers, you know, in their suits and ties standing on the front porch, and this guy shows up and he's got a sport coat, open collar shirt, no tie, and they said, where's your tie? He said, well, I didn't wear one today. And they said, well, you know, we kind of like the people that visit our church to wear a tie. And he said, well, I, can I still worship? I didn't wear one today. And they said, well, y- you know, what we'd like you to do is go back out to your car. I bet you pulled a tie off like I just did, threw it on the back seat of your car, and you, you can get it and put it on. He said, no, I-, I didn't take a tie off and throw it on the back seat. Well, maybe you threw one in the boot of your car. And he said, no, no, I didn't. What well, would you just go check? And he thought, some church won't let me in. Let's go. So he walks out to his car, opens the back door. There's no tie there. Goes around to the boot, race it. There's no tie there. But he did see a set of jumper cables. So he got those, put them around his neck, looped them through one time, you know, pulled them up tight, comes walking back. You know, the prongs, the terminals of the jumper cables hanging here. And when he walked up on the porch, one of those ushers said, all right, we'll let you in, but you better not try to start something. (laughs) That's terrible, isn't it? Look, I, (laughs) I will not fight and die for a piece of fabric, but I will fight and die for this. I'll fight and die for the inspiration and authority of the Scripture. Are you with me?
I'll not fight and die for a piece of fabric, but I will fight and die for the deity of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth, the vicarious atonement, the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the grave, the fact that he's going to visibly return to take those of us who know him back to heaven to be with him. Those are called the fundamentals of the faith. Those are fight and die things, right? Are you with me? Piece of fabric? Are you kidding me? Uh-uh. Now, don't walk out of here saying, Brother Dave's changing. Oh, he's denying the faith. He got rid of his tie. You would never do that. It's just my friends in America that do that. It's true, they do. God's looking for men who are willing to live a selfless life and if necessary, a sacrificial life. There's certain things, men, we need to be willing to fight and die on that battlefield. And spiritual truth is one of those things. The setting, the search, number three. I want you to see the sigh. S-I-G-H. It's like God sighs at the end of verse 30. You say, what do you mean by that? I want you to look at it. Stay with me. And I sought for a man among them that should erect a wall and stand in the gap before me for the land that I should not destroy it. Here comes the sigh. But I found, what's the word again? I found what? Not one single solitary person. Friends, I want you to look up at me. Part of why I love this country so much is its incredible history that I live as a beneficiary of today. Dave, you're an American. How are you a beneficiary of British history? Let me tell you. And by the way, I love your country for this and a whole lot more. We're not going to probably be able to make it tomorrow to one of my favorite towns, and that's Oxford, England. Several years ago, Brother Larry took us. One of the smartest things I think, not he ever did, I, we ever did, was hire a tour guide. The first thing he did was take us to that roadway that's now been shut down to automobile traffic. It's open to foot traffic. And right in the middle of the roadway, they've peeled up the asphalt, and there is a cross made out of cobblestone. Everybody know what I'm talking about? And the tour guide said, it was at this spot that the Oxford Three or Oxford Martyrs died. He said, do any of you, he knew we were mostly Americans, any of you know, about the Oxford martyrs, I raised my hand. I said, yes, sir, if I, I know a little bit about him. He said in 1556, two of the three, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley, were captured by Mary, Queen Mary. She had a very descriptive adjective in front of her name, though. She was called what? Bloody Mary. And did she earn her title well? I remember going to the Tower of London which I thought for years, I hear Tower of London, I thought, it's a tower. No, it's a, it's a kind of like a castle, with, and it's a beautiful place. But on Tower Hill, Bloody Mary killed a thousand men, many of whom were preachers of the gospel. But two that escaped her clutches were Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. But she finally caught him. In 1556, she brought him. And the tour guide said, Somewhere around here on this side of the cross, they drove a stake in the ground. Over here, poof, drove a stake in the ground. Tied Latimer's body to the, to the stake and tied Ridley's body here to the stake. Brought in the brush, put it around their feet. Returned with torches. 
and set the brush on fire. And then the way he described it is this. All of town came to watch, including toddling children. Like watching a sporting event. They watched Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley burn to death for their faith. Because Bloody Mary had said, recant of your faith, swear allegiance to what they believed, Brian, would be false doctrine, and they were correct. Neither men would succumb. So they burned to death for their faith. As the flames are coming up their body, the narrator told it so powerfully. I'd read the story. It gripped my heart. As the flames come up their body, Latimer, to the right, turns to his compadre, to the left, Nicholas Ridley. And above the roar of the flame, he yells these words, Take heart, Master Ridley! Play the man! We shall this day light such a candle in the country of England that I trust by the grace of God shall never be put out. And did they ever light a candle for the gospel? Wow! As I understand it, in the outskirts of the crowd safe distance away watching his two companions die was the third of the Oxford martyrs. His name was Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury. And he successfully evaded the clutches of Bloody Mary for almost, not quite, but almost another year. But in 1557, she caught him. And she brought him there. And he was escorted down a long hall or down a long aisle to the front of a building where there was a table about three times the size of this and behind it sat two, two men who were forming a tribunal. And the men turned and slid across the table a piece of parchment and they said to Thomas Cranmer, take that quill pen, sign your name on that recantation statement. Deny your faith in Jesus. Swear allegiance to false doctrine. We'll let you go. Refuse to do so. You will die. Now, friends, I'm not throwing a rock at Thomas Kramer because I've never been there. Not where he was. In a moment of weakness, he took the quill and dipped it in the inkwell and put his name on a recantation statement, denied his faith. Any of you remember this? Behind the table, according to our tour guide, the men said, you're free to go. Thomas Kramer walked down the center aisle of that tribunal hall Free in body, but anything but free in spirit. Because like Peter of old in the New Testament, he just denied his Lord. Peter denied it with his lips. Cranmer denied it with a quill pen. The tour guide then asked this. I don't know if you remember this, Larry. He said, do any of you remember how long he lived with his denial? I said, yes, sir, I think I remember. He said, how long? I said, three days. He said, bingo, you're right. Three days after denying his Lord... Cranmer bursts through the doors of the tribunal hall and he comes back down the aisle raving like a maniac, shouting, I take it back! I take it back! And the men behind the table said, you take what back? He said, what I did here three days ago. I do not deny my Lord. They said, keep talking like that. We'll carry out and burn you now. Now he said it, Brian, way more eloquently than the way I'm about to say it. But in essence, what he said to those men was this, don't threaten me with seeing my Savior. Carry me. Carry me. So they did. Drove a stake in the ground, tied his torso to it, brought in the brush, brought in the flame, set it on fire, stood back to watch him burn to death. By the way, you can go online and see this. There's a lithograph drawing, Brian, online 
of the flames coming up Cranmer's body. As the flames begin to consume his body, he lifted his right hand, the one that had signed the recantation statement. And evidently, according to our tour guide, he just kind of looked at it. And then above the roar of the flame, where everybody in town could hear him, he said, this hand that denied my Lord, it's going to be the first to burn. And he held it in the roaring flame until thumb, finger, 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 dropped off. And then he raised a nub on this side. Five fingers still on this arm. Dipped his head backward and sang praises to Jesus to the flames engulfed him. By the way, you can read every bit of this in a great book called Fox's Book of Martyrs. Can I tell you something, fellas? In 1556 and 1557, God's manhunt netted three guys, didn't it? Somebody told me, preacher, that's stupidity, die like that. I said, no, that's not stupidity. That's genuine Christianity. That's what that is. That's the real deal. Are you with me? I had a man tell me this in the States as we were talking about what happened at Oxford. I said to him, the day's going to come in our country, sir. When that's going to happen to us, we're going to have to die for our faith. He said, Dave. <laughs> no way. Not America. I said, oh, yes. I said, I know it's going to happen because it already has. He said, what are you talking about? I said, sir, has it been so long you don't remember 1995? A school in Colorado called Columbine High School. Any of you remember this where a shooting took place? Two young men, automatic rifles, Eric Harris, Dylan Klebold, walked into Columbine High School. And Brian, they made their way to the public school library because they're looking for two groups of people. They found both in the library, Christians and athletes. And they walk up, and pardon me for using you as my illustration. You are so joyful. I love it. But pardon me for doing this. Okay, and pardon me for pointing, please. Okay, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. But they walk up to a blonde-haired, blue-eyed, 16-year-old girl named Rachel Scott. They put an automatic weapon in her face and they ask her what came to just be known in America as the question. What's the question, Dave? Do you believe Jesus is your Lord and Savior? It's what Eric and Dylan ask. Because if you say yes, you're going to pay with your life. And that beautiful blonde-haired, blue-eyed girl looked down the barrel of a loaded automatic weapon and she said, Jesus is my Lord. And bang. They walked across the room, Brian, pardon me for pointing. And they found a young African-American athlete, football player, tremendous athlete, but an even better Christian. He's just watched his classmate die. They put the gun in his face and they asked him the question, do you believe? Here's how that young man chose to answer it. As he squared his shoulders and said, I do not deny my Lord. I do not deny Jeep Bang. It's already happened in my country. And friends, it's going to happen more. And it'll happen here. Can I say this? There's a phrase we use in America. It's called man up. It's man up time. Are you with me? Now I want to ask you something. What if through the double doors or the, yes, double doors that lead to the outside tonight, 
walked armed men and they came through the double doors into this room. And they came down front and they started right here with my buddy, Howard. And they asked him the question, do you really believe? I, 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 know, I know you're in a church service. I know, I know, I know, I know. But do you really believe? Because all kinds of people attend religious services. It's one thing to say you believe, but this is man up time. Do you really believe? Alex paid with a bullet. Then they came to our dear sister here. And from her down this aisle. And then they came over here. And every one of us were asked the question. I want to ask you something. What would you say? Now, I'm just being candid. I'm just being honest for myself. I know what I want to say. But like Thomas Kramer, I've, I've never faced death for my faith yet. Neither have you. We call it persecution. It's not really persecution. It's just people sneering at us, rolling their eyes. One of those nutcase Christians. That ain't persecution. What Rachel Scott endured is persecution. What would you say? Not what would you want to say. What would you say? I'm here to tell you, men and ladies, neither I nor you will die for something we don't legitimately possess. Peter genuinely knew the Lord and denied him three times when the pressure came, didn't it? And didn't he? He knew the Lord, but he denied him. He went out and wept bitterly, got right with God, and God used him powerfully on the day of Pentecost. So it ain't ever over till it's over. Are you with me? But I can promise you this, if Peter knew the Lord and denied him, you and I, if we really don't know him, we're not going to die for something we don't legitimately possess. No way. So what would you say? God's looking. Not just for the male gender. He's looking for people. That's what the phrase I sought for a man. I'm looking for individuals, people will be selfless and sacrificial and decide for whom they're going to live because for whom you choose to live, that's for whom you'll choose to die. Are you with me? See, God's not asking us to die for him yet, though that may come. He's just asking us to live for him. Will we? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? Father, would you speak to us this evening? Father, I pray if there's a man or woman in this room that doesn't know you as Savior, I pray tonight you'd speak to them. And Lord, if the thought of facing the barrel of a loaded automatic weapon scares them, Lord, I don't know, maybe they need to be scared. Maybe they need to examine themselves and see whether or not they're in the faith. Lord, all I'm asking is that you speak to us this evening and Lord, for any person in this room that doesn't really know you as Savior, I pray, oh God, you draw them to you before it's too late. And then, Lord, help the rest of us who do know you. Be willing not just to say, Lord, I want to live for you. May we actually do it. Now, friends, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, I want to ask you just a couple of questions. If you know for absolute certain that Jesus is your Savior, and then when life's over for you down here, whenever that is, 
Dave, I know when life is over for me down here, I know I'm going to heaven. If you know that's true, would you lift your hand, just hold it as high as you can. Dave, I know I'm going to heaven when life is over for me down here. I don't have a doubt about that. Thank you. You may put your hand down. Bless your heart. Second question. Are there some in the room tonight? Could be several. You do not know for sure that when life is over for here that heaven's going to be your eternal destiny. You don't know that. Friend, it's no shame to admit you don't know that. The shame would be this, to not admit it. Push Jesus away and end up departing this life not ready, not saved, not forgiven, and end up in hell forever. Is there anyone in the room that would say, Preacher, look, you're talking to me right now. I do not know that when life is over for me down here, I do not know that I'm going to heaven. I don't have the assurance of that at all. But Dave, here's the deal. I'm concerned about where I am going to spend the life after this life. It's called eternity, and there is one. I'm concerned about where I'm going to spend eternity. Concerned enough, preacher, that I'd like you to pray for me. Friend, I'd love to pray for you. Not by name, of course. By the way, no one's looking but me. Is there anyone in the room that would say, Dave, you're talking to me. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that if I died tonight that I'd go to heaven, but I'm concerned about that. Please pray for me. I'd love to pray for you. If that's you, would you lift your hand long enough for me to see it anywhere in the room? Thank you. Thank you. Are there any others? Thank you. God bless you. I thank you. Thank you. I'm going to pray for you in just a second. I don't want to overlook a single person. Is there anyone else? I'm looking all across the room. Dave, I'm not sure if I died tonight, I'd go to heaven, but I want you to pray for me. Is there anyone else at all? Father, I do pray for these incredible people. I pray for those who lifted their hand. Lord, I thank you for their courage. I thank you for their concern for their own eternal future. Please, Lord, help them to understand they need to be greatly concerned. And I'm asking you, Lord, that tonight you would so work in their heart that they wouldn't just be willing to lift a hand, though they'll never know how much I appreciate them doing that because it gives me the privilege to pray for them. But may they not just lift a hand and leave it at that. I pray they'd be willing to go one more step, just one more simple step. I pray they'd be willing to let someone just take a Bible. And from the Bible, introduce them to you, Lord Jesus, the greatest friend they'll ever have, so they can experience your forgiveness your salvation, the assurance that when they leave this life, they're going to heaven to be with you. Father, may they get that settled forever tonight, I pray. Now, friends, our heads are still bowed, our eyes are still closed. You have listened so well tonight, I can't thank you enough. If you lifted your hand and said, Dave, pray for me, I'm not sure. If I died tonight, I'd go to heaven. You know who you are, I know who you are. But more important than any of that, God knows who you are and he knows everything else about you too. And friend, he loves you. He brought you here tonight to hear the truth. Now I'm going to ask Pastor Larry to stand at the back of the auditorium just like I asked him to do early this morning when we had our first session. I'm not twisting your arm. I couldn't do that even if I tried. But I do want to give you an opportunity. No one's looking but just me, and that is the truth, and I appreciate everybody cooperating. If you lifted your hand and said, I'm not sure I'm going to heaven... Could I implore you, could I strongly encourage you to be willing to do this? You could just get up from where you're seated. No one's going to see you do that. You could step right to the back where Pastor Larry is. He'll put someone with you that will take a Bible and introduce you to Jesus Christ. 
You can leave tonight knowing you're going to heaven. It's settled. It's over. It's done. Would you be willing to do that this evening? If so, I want to give you an opportunity to step to the back right now. I'm not going to coerce you, but I do want to strongly encourage you. We're talking about your eternal future. Would you be willing just to step to where Brother Larry is? Oh, Dave, this is different than what's normally. I understand that. This is a different time we're living in. And I'm dead serious about how important this is. You need to be as well. You'd be willing just to step to the back. While you're thinking, I want to pose one final question. Many of you in this room, in fact, the vast majority, lifted your hand and said, I know I'm going to heaven. Well, I want to ask you something. I want you to hear my proposition all the way through from beginning to end. Here it goes. Wow, Lord, I get it. I understand what it is and who it is you're looking for. You're looking for people who will be selfless, sacrificial, and who will be willing to live for you. And if they have to, they're willing to die for you. So friends, that's my proposition. How many of you that know Christ as Savior would be willing to say that to the Lord mean it? Lord, I get it. I get what it is you're looking for on your person hunt. You're looking for people who are willing to live for you, and if they have to, willing to die for you. I wonder how many of you that know Christ would be willing to say that to the Lord and mean it. Lord, I'm not afraid nor ashamed to tell you tonight, I'm going to live for you. From this night forward, Lord, like I've never done before, I'm going to live for you. And if I have to, if I have to, if it's your will for me, folks, I pray it never comes your way nor mine. I certainly pray it never comes my children's way. There's no guarantee it won't. I'm going to live for you now, Lord, and if I have to, if it's your will, if it's what you want me to do, I'm telling you tonight, Lord, not only am I going to live for you, but if I have to, I'm telling you tonight, it's my intent to die for you. But I'm going to live for you now. And if I have to, I'll die for you later. That's what Daniel purposed in his heart. By the way, that's what every soldier, and that's been the theme this week, that's what every soldier determines. I'm willing to die for something. My country. We're talking about dying for our commander-in-chief, Jesus Christ. I'm willing to live for you now, and Lord, if you have it in your will for me that I have to die for you, I'm telling you now, it's my intent to do so. I'll not run in that day. I'm going to live for you now if I have to. It is my intent, my desire, to die for you later. If you'd be willing to tell God that and mean it, live for you now, and if I have to, I'll die for you later. If that is your will for me at some future date, live for you now. If I have to, I'm telling you it's my intent to die for you later. I wonder if you'd be willing to tell God that by doing this. This is the last service of this week. I wonder if you'd be willing to get up from where you're currently seated. We're not going to have any music play right now. But I wonder if you'd be willing to join me here in the altar and tell God that. I'm going to live for you now, Lord. And if it's your will for me, if I have to, I'm telling you it's my desire, my intent to die for you later. God bless you, young man. God bless you, sir, and you, sir, and you, dear ma'am, and you, sir, and you, sir, and you, sir, and you, sir, and you, ma'am, all these incredible ladies. God bless you, young lady, and you, ma'am, and you, ma'am, and you, sir. 
Lord, I'm not afraid. I'm not ashamed to tell you. I'm going to live for you now aggressively. And if it's your will, if it should be what you have for me at some future date, I'm telling you it's my intent, my desire to die for you then. Let's put the emphasis on living for him now. Anyone else want to join us? This is your moment, friend. This is your moment. Preacher, why are you talking to us about this? Because I'm privy to some information that I can't share with you. And from the other side of the pond's perspective, my country's perspective, things are getting real serious. And we're very close to a time where we're going to have to decide what we're going to do. I've already made my choice. Really made it years ago, but I tell you what, in January, my sweet bride and I had a real serious conversation. And I said, honey, are you with me? As I shared with you the other night, you know I am. It's going to cost us something, I know. But it costs Jesus everything to die for us. So it's man up time. Father, I cannot tell you how much I love you. And Lord, I can't tell you how much I love this incredible group of people. I wish I had an arm long enough on the right and long enough on the left just to go all the way down and around and embrace every one of them and pull them up close and give them one giant hug. These are incredible people. This is an incredible church. These have been phenomenal young people. And Lord, I pray with everything that's in me, you would help us to be mutual encouragers of each other. And Father, I pray that we would drive a tent peg deep tonight. A line in the sand would be drawn tonight where we've made our choice as to what we're going to do. So when the crisis moment comes, and for some of us, no doubt it will come, I pray it doesn't, but Lord, I'm firmly convinced it will. When the crisis moment comes and we face the pressure, may we have already made the decision because we made it tonight, 25th of February. 2018, at the conclusion of the Sword of the Spirit Bible Conference. And Father, may we never retreat, may we never run from a commitment we're making this evening. And Father, I'll thank you and praise you for it. I ask this, Lord Jesus, in your name and for your glory alone.